The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. I'm <laughs> just struggling here. By the nick of my skin of my teeth, I guess is the better word, uh, phrase, uh, I got everything up and running. Um, I was having some software issues. Always happens right at the last second, right? Uh, Windows decides it has to update right at that moment. I think uh, Bill Gates and company have it out for me. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I have any better explanation other than Microsoft itself has identified what time this show starts, and they've decided all of their updates will come five minutes before that time, so that they can just wreak havoc with what we're doing here. They don't want the truth to get out, right? Because we'll call them out on it as well. <laughs> anyway, welcome to the program, everybody. We've got a good one for you. Um, Isaac Arthur will be joining us. He is a space or a science communicator, but he's much more than that. He's actually a, uh, gonna, going to be talking about physics, astronomy, space exploration, uh, specifically space colonization, uh, the Fermi paradox, and futurism. There's a lot of really detailed information that will come out of tonight's discussion. Um, you're going to want to listen carefully and keep your thinking caps on because this will get deep whenever you start talking about space and the distances and the numbers and the time and the concepts uh you can't help but uh leave a conversation scratching your head at least that's that's what happens to me when uh, i have such conversations uh later this week we've got some more great stuff for you um patricia steer and mark Sargent will be with us tomorrow night they are um authors and they are believers and proponents of flat earth theory now there was a documentary very recently put up on Netflix, it's still there, called Behind the Curve, and it's about them, about the two of them primarily. It's about uh, a lot of people that um, that actually uh, discuss, meet, believe in, and debate flat earth theory, but it the, the documentary itself really, really focuses on the two of them and their lives and and uh each other and it's kind of interesting i hope you've had a chance to watch it if you haven't uh, try to do that before tomorrow night's discussion because it'll make a lot more information or uh, sense when you see that information and uh, have a chance to watch the documentary it's 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 worth watching i, I thought it was very interesting whether you whether you believe or uh disbelieve whatever whatever your thoughts are on flat earth theory the documentary is worth watching Thursday night's program, Cheryl Lynn Darcy will be with us. Now, Cheryl Lynn is a botanical explorer, a natural history author, and an artist, and she specializes in the study of floral ethnobotany, which is the connections between us, flowers. Uh, they can be cultural connections. They can be metaphysical or spiritual connections, also medicinal connections, practical connections, so on. Anything that connects us with flowers uh, should be an interesting discussion. Um, she studies all types of plants, so it doesn't have to be just flowers. We'll be talking about all this stuff. Uh, and let's see, that's going to end the week because we have a Best of Friday night, as we do every Friday night on Beyond Reality Radio. A couple things I want to mention. Um, I know it's a, a couple months away, but uh, there's a lot of talk about Scaricon coming up. Um, you've heard me talk about it on this program before. It's a fan convention for anybody who's into uh, horror or paranormal or sci-fi or pop culture entertainment. Brings in a lot of celebrities. It's not, it's not a haunted house. That's, some people get that impression. It's not. It's an event that has celebrities, vendors, um, panel discussions, film screenings, parties, 
and just a lot of fun. And it's coming up June 7th through the 9th in Framingham, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, actually. Uh, it's very easy to get to. It's the Sheridan uh, Hotel and Conference Center in Framingham. And it's, um, it's, it's available for everybody. It's going to be a great time. If you want more information, go to Scaracon. There's an A in there, Scaracon.com, and you'll see the beginning of the celebrity guest list, plus uh, the schedule will start to be posted. Everything's going to start being populated on that website so check that out and while you're on the web uh make sure you check out the beyond reality radio website there's a nice coffee mug there that's available for sale to show your support of the program i'm holding one up right now for all the folks watching on our youtube stream to see uh coffee tastes great out of it tea hot chocolate milk you can even throw some soda in there whatever it's all good um, and then one more thing I'll ask you to do is swing by the Facebook page and uh, my personal fan page, which is JV Johnson, and also find me on YouTube. Give both of those a subscribe or a like or whatever it happens to be. It's all great stuff. So as I said, we've got a very, very interesting program coming up tonight with Isaac Arthur. We're going to be talking about space travel, colonization, the Fermi paradox, and uh, a bunch of other things that are going to make us all scratch our heads. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm JV. We'll be back in just a moment. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. All right, welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio as we get our ducks in a row here. Yeah, software issues to start the night out, but we're good now. Uh, and we're ready for a great conversation. Our guest tonight is Isaac Arthur. He is a science communicator. His website is his name, IsaacArthur.net, and we're uh, honored to have him on the program. Isaac, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Well, thank you for having me on. So um, we've got a lot to talk about, and I hope you give us the, um, what will we say, the uh, grade school edition here, just so we can understand it. Because I know as we get into these topics, it gets kind of complicated, and in many times, it's kind of mind-blowing. But before we get into this stuff, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get started with all this? Oh, well, I have been in college for physics, and I left for the military during grad school. When I got out, I went civil service, so I was... uh, kind of missing that science thing, so I tried making a couple of videos on YouTube, and it kind of snowballed into what we do now at the show, which is mostly discuss uh, science and future topics from kind of the perspective of what technologies we might have or what we see on science fiction and if that could be realistic. And you're so uh, just so we can make sure everybody knows what we're talking about here, you have a YouTube channel. What's the YouTube channel called? How can people find it? And uh, how often do you post videos on it? Well, we typically post a video about once a week. It's science and excuse me, science and futurism with Isaac Arthur, or just Isaac Arthur will find it for you. And uh, we produce episodes every Thursday morning, and sometimes we use some extra ones too. So that's what you're doing now, and you you, met, you you talked a little bit about how you started to get involved in this. But at some point along the way, probably as a child, I would guess, uh, you looked up at the stars and said, "This stuff's pretty amazing." Oh, yeah. I was kind of raised to do this. My parents named me Isaac Albert Arthur, and they were both physics majors when they met. So uh, I kind of uh, got uh, raised for it, if you would. So it's always been a fun topic for me. Did you say both of your parents were physicists? Physics was, majors, physics yeah. My majors. mom ended up going into computers, though. So. I see. Um, so, you know, many of us as youngsters look up with wonderment at the night sky, particularly when you've got a clear night and you and you can see the multitude of stars and planets and whatever all those things are that are sending light, light back to Earth. Um, tell us a little bit about the vastness of space. 
Well, to quote Douglas Adams, space is big, really, really big. Uh, you just won't <laughs> believe how insanely big it is. It's um, hard to kind of, you know, you, you travel the Earth, and the Earth seems so big. And that's just a fraction of the distance to someplace like Mars. And that's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the distance to the nearest stars. And the universe itself is almost 100 billion light years across, the observable portion. We don't even know how big the entirety of it is because that's only the portion that we can actually see light from. It could be even infinite in size, but it's certainly, almost certainly much larger than what we can see, which is already insanely huge. And if I remember some of my numbers uh, correctly, um, there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, our galaxy alone, right? Oh, yeah. And just about as many galaxies for every star there is in our, uh, our galaxy. So, you know, you've got numbers there that uh, are just mind-bogglingly huge. And each one of those could host a civilization far more vast than our own. So it's, it's just kind of a realizing kind of with a little bit of humility how small we are compared to the universe. While at the same time, it does seem like there's a decent chance we might get to have a good portion of it to ourselves. When we talk about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, we know our galaxy, well, I guess it depends on who you ask, has 8, 9, or 10 planets, depending on how you define a few things that are orbiting the sun. Um, you know, and then you start doing that math. You multiply the number of planets by the number of stars, uh, and you start to do the probability that life exists in a way that we can understand life on one of those other planets. What are the, what are the percentages? How, how does that math work out? Well, that's the downside. We don't actually know. We have the basic equation, the Drake's equation, for how often life should be there. And it's got a bunch of terms and variables in it. But uh, while we know a few of them, like how many planets there are and how many stars there are and what their formation rates are, for a lot of the other ones, like how often life forms, we don't know. We have a sample size of one. So it could be <laughs> you know, every system's inhabited or it could be you know, none inside this galaxy all. Well, I guess that is the, that's the, uh, to, to understate it, the million-dollar question. Yeah, and hopefully we'll start knowing sooner. I, we could find intelligent life any time now, but if there's, there could be life on many systems and it's just not intelligent like we are. And in the next 20 or 30 years, there's a good chance we'll start finding out if any of those planets are inhabited by some sort of life if they are oxygen carbon-based like we are. Um, this uh, segment is kind of a short segment, so I don't want to get too deeply into much of this. But one of the things that you um, also describe yourself as is a futurist. What is a futurist? You know, I'm never too clear on that. I, I would say now, if I should get that on my business card, I put uh, I'm a futurist. I'm right 51% of the time. Um, that was kind of one of those uh, nicknames I ended up just getting from the audience. They had said the topics we covered were very future-based, so they just started calling it that. There's a few others, but I don't think it's really all that rigorously defined. We just talk about the future. Uh, so I didn't go to college for that. I just went there for physics. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things you get to make it up as you go, I suppose. Do you believe that um, we are – how do I ask this? Let me ask it a different way. Do you believe that there are extraterrestrial life forms living on this planet with us? Probably not. Uh, you can never rule something like that out, but it always has to look at the motivation for it. And uh, it's possible they are, but they'd have to be hiding pretty well. And there's not too many reasons I can think of why they would do that, though we can't rule it out, obviously. Um, and what about uh, in our solar system? Uh, you know, there's still speculation that we're going to find something on Mars, at least evidence of former life on Mars. Do you think that uh, we have been the only life form 
in this solar system here on Earth? Or do you think that there have been others and may still be others? Well, that's, you know, there's three ways to look at it. And I would tend to say that we probably are the only life in the solar system. But until we actually start digging around on Mars, you know, if there's active life there, we'd probably have seen it by now. But uh, there could have been life there three, four billion years ago. It could have originated from Earth, uh, or we could have originated from Mars if life had started there first. There is exchange between these places, or Europa is another good candidate for life, too. And we just won't know until we start digging around there and, and hunting them down. So I tend to think probably not, but there's no data yet, so we have to actually get in there and check. Now, I'm gonna, I'm, I may betray some of my lack of understanding of some of these uh, terms, ideas, concepts, and places, but Europa is a moon, right? Yes, Europa is one of Saturn's moons, uh, one of the larger ones. Right. Um, We've talked about the... Sorry, va- not Saturn, Jupiter's moons. Jupiter's moons, right, yeah. We've talked about uh, the vastness and, the, and the, the numbers involved here, 100 billion stars and planets orbiting many of those stars, um, 100 billion galaxies each with 100 billion stars. These numbers are huge. But we're also, one of the things we need to uh, kind of put into perspective, too, is the time involved. Now, we know um, that the Earth is, what, 4.2 billion years old? Is that the going number at this point? Four and change, yeah. Four and change. About 4.5 the entire solar system. Okay, so the solar system is 4.5 billion years. We tend to think of things in terms of centuries, um, you know, but obviously our perception of time is far different than the, uh, what we would call the astro uh, time or, 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 you know, the millennia and the uh, eons that it's taken for all of this to form. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you think about it, uh, 100,000 years, if the entire universe was one day old, 100,000 years is about a second. It's just not a lot of time. And yeah. that's the extent of human civilization even being fairly generous. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to go to break here in just a couple of minutes. Um, and before we do that, I want you again to give your YouTube channel, let people know um, the various ways they can see the videos. Also, I think there are a few ways that people can support the work you do. Mm-hmm. Well, you can support us on Patreon or just uh, Google Isaac Arthur. It will almost certainly take you either to our website, IsaacArthur.net, or to our YouTube site, uh, which is just Isaac Arthur. All right, and we're going to get into all of these topics and more on the other side of the break. We'll also take your phone calls at 844-687-7669. We know that uh, space exploration has changed, at least from our perspective. It's gone from a government-centric NASA model to now some uh, private space companies that are promising some very, very interesting things. We'll talk about all that as well. Don't forget, tomorrow night, Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent will be with us, which will uh, give us a conversation that'll be very, very different from the one we're having tonight. We're going to be talking about flat earth theory, but more specifically, the documentary that they were the focus of that's on Netflix right now, it's called Behind the Curve. And once again, I'll I'll, uh, suggest that if you haven't had a chance to watch it, please do. It's less about the flat earth theory itself and more about these personalities, uh, which I think you'll find interesting. And then Thursday night's program, Sherilyn Darcy, who's a botanical explorer, a natural history author and artist, will be with us to talk about the study of floral ethnobotany, which is the connection between us and flowers, whether it's cultural, metaphysical, spiritual, medicinal, practical, and so on. We'll be talking about that Thursday night with Sherilyn Darcy. Again, our guest tonight, Isaac Arthur. He's a science communicator. That's uh, Isaac, that's another uh, term that I haven't really heard before, science communicator. Is that, is that a, a self-made title, or is that something that you got from somewhere else? 
I would say probably an audience-granted title. <laughs> we were always trying to think about what we should actually say was what I was doing was, and people just saw calling it a science communicator, which I guess what we call like Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson, too, because most of what we're doing is trying to communicate you know, how science works to people. All right, so let's um, let's get into some of this detail. Uh, one of the things I know that we wanted to talk about and that you've talked a lot about is the Fermi complex, or excuse me, paradox. Explain what that is, uh, why it's important, then let's chat about it a little bit. Well, the Fermi paradox in simple form is just the idea that this universe we're in is so huge and so ancient and seems to be filled with so many plants that ought to be able to host life. Uh, it makes us wonder where is the rest of all that life at? And that's the big question. We would expect there to be tons of life spreading out from all these worlds, but we're not really seeing it, or at least we don't feel in many cases that we've got good evidence for it. And uh, we start trying to come up with reasons why this uh, this would be the case. So basically, again, to kind of just uh, 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 simplify this, it's the fact that the numbers suggest we should be encountering other life or seeing evidence of it, and we just haven't. Yes, yeah. And you've got basically three schools of thought. There's one that says, well, we have plenty of evidence. You know, we see them all the time, where we fly in saucers and things like that. The other is the extreme end, which is where I tend to gravitate, which is we're probably just assuming the numbers are a little bit too generous and that life is probably just not that common or intelligent life is not that common. And then, of course, there are many that assume that life is pretty common, but we're not in contact with it. And those all tend to come up with the reasons why that would be so. At what point uh, do the distances just become too insurmountable for us to either travel to uh, a a point where there is other life or for that other life to travel to us? About 10 billion light years. Uh, That's pretty much our (laughs) maximum edge to be able to get to uh, from what we can say right now. Now, that was actually Fermi's original thought on the matter was that there wasn't really much of a paradox because things are just so spread out. And they were only just starting the uh, space age at the time that you could just never reach these other systems. And now we're saying, well, you don't even necessarily need to reach them, but you probably could. What you really need to hear is communications or see some kind of signal they exist. In your estimation, what's what's going to happen first? Are we going to uh, extend ourselves out into uh, f- far reaches of space and encounter life? Or do you think life will come to us and encounter us before we do that? I think we're probably going to end up seeing it as we uh, start to spread out from the solar system, and maybe even before we actually spread out, we might be able to start detecting, you know, inhabited planets. We probably won't get the radio signals that SETI's hoping for, because if those were out there, we'd, we'd probably have heard them by now. But there's a lot of other options for detection, and it depends on are we talking about intelligent life, or are we talking about just life-life, in which case an oxygen-rich atmosphere might be a giveaway. Um, you know, then we get into things like uh, Stephen Hawking's warning that, you know, we need to be careful about broadcasting or, tel- or, or telegraphing our presence here because we may attract uh, less than friendly visitors. Mm-hmm. Well, that's been a concern almost from the get-go said it was. It's a good idea to listen, but we shouldn't communicate. You know, don't don't scream out in a forest that you're there because it might be a predator that answers your call. And um, the general notion that we say there is, while that's a concern, it's too late. You know, anybody who is really looking for life with hostile intent and could actually do something to us if they found us, you know, that implies they can travel to us, uh, they wouldn't have had to wait for us to be doing radio signals to have seen us. They could have sent probes by long, long ago. 
and they really just hated any other life that wasn't theirs, it's very easy for an interstellar civilization to trash a planet. Any spaceship is basically a giant nuclear bomb. Is it going to be possible for us to colonize anything other than Earth? Um, Mars is the most likely target if if we don't consider the moon uh, a place to be colonized. Um, is that something you think that we will actually ultimately be able to do? Yeah, I do think it is. I mean, until we actually do it, we can't really say how hard it's going to be. And we might have a lot of false starts, seeing as we have a place like Jamestown or many of the other early colonies. But I do think the technology is there for that, and we do discuss a lot of that on the show. But it is kind of um, one of the problems we have with this is we get very planet-focused. We, uh, we grew up on a planet. That's the only place we know of that has life. But it's easy to forget that in many ways the plant's kind of like a cave. You don't go looking for more caves to live in. You learn how to quarry stone and build houses. So while we might end up terraforming planets, it's probably more likely that most people who live off Earth in the future would live in an artificially constructed habitat, uh, something we call an O'Neill cylinder, where it's basically just a big spinning can you live on the inside of. And uh, you can replicate conditions uh, parallel to Earth much better there than you can on most planets. So what you're saying then is we will uh, most likely be uh, residents of spaceships or some type of space vehicle or station uh, as opposed to actually living on the surface of another planet. Quite probably, yeah. It just comes down to when you think about it, Earth, you have only about a meter or so of dirt underneath you that you really use, and there's several thousand uh, kilometers of the stuff beneath us. It's not all that efficient. It's, again, it's kind of like living in the three or four caves that might be in the side of the mountain. You think about how many you know, buildings you could make out of a mountain instead. And that's kind of the approach. If you've got really good automation, you know, very good robots that can build stuff uh, pretty close to like, human-level intelligence, then suddenly it gets so much easier to build stuff, especially in space where it's so hostile to life, that it starts to get easier to build these kind of things than it is to terraform a planet. And you can build so many more in terms of living area. It's like a million-to-one ratio. And this starts taking us towards one of our detection methods for aliens. What we look for is what we call a Kardashev II civilization, or one that's built so many of these habitats and power collectors around their own sun that they've basically englobed it. And instead of emitting normal light, it's emitting basically infrared waste heat. And we always say that's the thing we're really looking for these days when we do SETI because there's no signals, but they probably wouldn't be bothering to hide their heat waste. And they probably could not do so. Yeah, yeah. We, um, you know, one of the things that limits us is the fact that um, as, you know, the, as, as human life form, we, our lifespan is limited. And again, with our ability to travel, obviously we don't have light speed travel. And we'll address that in a few, in a few minutes. Um, but our, the speeds at which we're able to travel won't get us very far in a human lifespan. Well, that's the interesting thing about that is our maximum speed calculations were mostly based off the idea of using chemical rockets. But we've known how to make a nuclear-powered spaceship that could get up to a modest fraction of light speed for quite some time. And uh, we have new options like Project Starshot, where we just push on it with a big laser, and that lets you get up to really fast speeds. And uh, so it is actually possible we might be able to make our full ships be able to reach a place like Alpha Centauri four light years away in maybe just a decade or two. And, uh, of course, that's still a very long time for a normal person, but there's no guarantee a normal person in a century or two is going to be the same as a normal person nowadays. And, of course, if you're living in these great big space stations already that are basically spaceships, 
the trip doesn't really seem like all that big a deal for you because you're just moving your city. You're not moving, you know, to a new place. You're just moving where your city's at. Interesting. Um, one of the things that's that's concerned some people as well is that as technology increases to the point that allows us to do do some of these things, um, the technology for self-destruction increases as well. Um, and is there a paradox there in that when we finally get to the point where we have the ability to uh, make some of these trips, to to venture out of our solar system, say, that we will also have the, have, uh, the technology to uh, destroy ourselves in the process and we may never get the chance to do it? Oh, yes. I mean, that's a very real concern, and one of the more common solutions to the Fermi Paradox is proposed is uh, many of the solutions say that we had to jump a lot of hurdles to get where we are now. And then we have the late filter approach, which says it's the last couple of things we still have to do before we colonize the galaxy that are likely to get us. The idea being, once you spread out from your own solar system, it's really hard to kill a species off. Uh, But... The technologies needed to get out of a solar system could very easily be the same ones you need to kill yourself off. And then the question is, which comes first? Do you manage to get to the point where anybody can blow you up before or after you've actually spread out to the rest of the universe? And we don't know yet. And so many of the technologies that uh, are on the horizon you know, are for not only a, a direct threat, you know, kind of your Skynet approach is uh, artificial intelligence might kill us all off. So that's not the only concern you have there. It's not just that artificial intelligence might kill everybody off. It's that artificial intelligence might, you know, basically represent an existential threat to us. It puts everybody out of work and turns everybody into pets. It's not hostile. Quite to the contrary, it just turns everybody into, uh, you know, basically laying around having nothing to do because the machine does it all. It keeps us like pets. And uh, if you are living in a lap of luxury and you don't have to do anything, you might not really be all that ambitious about getting out to the galaxy. Yeah, great point. Again, we're talking with Isaac Arthur. He is a science communicator. We're talking about about a lot of things, but specifically space travel, space colonization, space exploration. And we welcome your phone calls and comments at 844-687-7669. We're going to take a break. When we come back, much more with Isaac Arthur on Beyond Reality Radio. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. We are in the middle of a very in-depth conversation with Isaac Arthur. He's a science communicator. Again, the phone number is 844-687-7669 if you'd like to call and join our discussion. Um, you know, Isaac, you've been doing this a while. You've got a, a lot of videos. How many videos do you have on your YouTube channel? Because there's a bunch of them there. I was looking through some of them. Oh, I think we're up to, well, actually, might be over 200 now. I only count the weekly episodes as uh, part of the official list, and that's at about 180 right now. So it's been... Five years. Yeah, and, and and those videos are all rather in-depth. I watched the Fermi Paradox start to finish. Uh, the, I'm not sure how long that one's been there, but I found it to be very interesting and very in-depth. And I, I urge folks who have an interest in this topic to visit your YouTube channel. Again, they can find it just by searching your name, Isaac Arthur, and uh, watch a few of these because it is fascinating. Um, you what You're on a weekly production schedule with those videos? Yep, every Thursday morning. Wow, that's a lot of work. I, I've I've done some myself, so I know I know what's involved in doing all that. Um, I don't know how you guys do two hours every night. I'd be, <laughs> Twenty minutes a week is enough for me. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, one of the advantages of of the way we do it is that being live. You know, we, there's only so much production you can do. I know in your videos, you know, you're doing a lot of graphics work and and putting you know putting a lot of stuff together there. Um, this is a question I'm going to ask now. We've only got about five minutes in this segment, um, and we'll pick up on this discussion on the other side of our top-of-the-hour break. Um, we've been talking about 
uh, humans colonizing space, leaving Earth, going somewhere else, whether it's living in space on a, some type of spacecraft or finding another planet, terraforming it and, and living there. But what are the odds that we are, in fact, um, the remnants of alien colonies from the past? Well, we're actually just talking about that recently. There's two ways that could potentially happen. The first, of course, is that they visit here, you know, three, four billion years ago, and everything here is related and descended from them. And that one's kind of tricky because we have a lot of complex life already on the planet. We have a fossil record that shows what the relationship thing is and goes back well enough. But it's not such a complete fossil record that if someone really wanted to, they could have kind of slid in and do what we call bioforming instead which instead of terraforming a planet to be like your own planet, you kind of adapt your species to that planet. And so we can't rule that one out, of course. There is a bit of a time horizon on being able to look back that far and expect to find any real evidence of a civilization. But it's probably not too likely just because it's, it's not so much they couldn't do it as you'd ask kind of why they did and what happened to them in the meantime. We have had uh, people on this program that have talked about uh, ancient aliens and, and, and giants that used to uh, walk the earth that could have some kind of alien DNA. Um, there's, obviously, you're familiar with a lot of these discussions and theories. Mm -hmm. um, do any of them make sense to you? Uh, well, they're great for science fiction. Some of my favorite <laughs> shows are on things like that, like Stargate, but they tend not to work too well when you start really poking at them because you can't rule them out. You know, you've got to deal with a high-tech civilization that's alien. You don't really know what their capabilities or motivations are. But there's always that question of where did they go afterwards and why did they leave? And uh, that's the tricky part because we've grown so much in a few thousand years, and they would have already had a head start and will heal where, where they go. And that's the biggest problem with those theories is that you have to account for why they left. One of the influences in my early life that led me to, I suppose, where I am today, gave me a curiosity and uh, kind of a passion for trying to find some of these answers, was uh, Eric Von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods. Uh, obviously mm -hmm. a book that was also made into a film. Um, some very, very interesting hypotheses in that film and book. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you have opinions mm -hmm. on it. Um, share some of that with us. Well, I don't want to beat up on the author, obviously. I don't agree with them on a lot of the stuff that was presented in there, but uh, it's always worth examining. And, of course, Egyptology was a big rage way back in the early 1900s, sorry, late 1900s, early 20th century a lot. Um, but uh, I just don't see it myself. The evidence, it feels like there should be more of it. You'd expect, uh, there's one thing about this is you've got a civilization that helped us build the pyramids in theory. You'd expect to see something higher tech from them and... It's not a good argument against it, uh, but I've always felt like when we say we need help to build the pyramids or Stonehenge, that's kind of taking away from the accomplishments of humans. Our ancestors were very smart people, same brains we had. And I dislike the notion of saying that they could have done these things on their own when we often know how they could have gone about doing it. That's not evidence that that's not what happened, of course, but to me it just doesn't fit the data very well. Interesting perspective. I, ha I hadn't heard that angle before. Um... But that, that does take away from the accomplishments of those who came before us, our ancestors. 
Yeah, and of course, one of the always a concern when you're doing a primitive civilization. You say, well, primitive is not simple. It's very different from us, and it can be kind of hard to wrap our heads around them because they didn't have computers or cars or things like that. But they they did have a lot of knowledge, and they did have a lot of determination. And uh, again, they maybe they didn't do it, but I I tend to think they could have done it. And I feel like I don't want to take the credit away from yeah. them unless we got good evidence to say otherwise. We're going to get to Mars in the next twenty years. I hope so. Um, I, you know, I really wouldn't be surprised if we did, but I'd much rather see us go back to the moon first. And the thing about going to Mars is you got that low gravity issue for years at a time. So I feel like we need a space station that's doing a slow rotation on par with uh, Mars's gravity force, and that's that would require something much more impressive than the International Space Station, which we don't have a model yet for what's going to replace that in six more years when it retires out. Did I understand it correctly? Is it about a six-month journey to get to Mars, or is it longer than that? Well, it depends on how fast you're going, of course, but usually you try to do a, a home and transfer orbit to save as much fuel as possible, and I can't remember off the top of my head how long that takes for Mars, uh, but I think it's about a two-year, two-and-a-half-year journey back and forth with two the windows available and, like, okay. only about six months that down on the ground itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Um, we've got a great show underway tonight. We're talking with Isaac Arthur. He's a science communicator. Visit his website at IsaacArthur.net. He also has, also has a YouTube channel of the same name, Isaac Arthur. Just search it. You'll find it. Um, and we'll bring him back into the conversation in just a few moments. Tomorrow night, Patricia Steer. And Mark Sargent will be with us. They are the subjects of a documentary that is on Netflix that if you haven't seen, um, you should check out before the interview tomorrow night. It's called Behind the Curve. It's about flat earth theory, but it's more importantly about the personalities involved with flat earth theory, particularly these two, Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent, and how they um, work together to kind of create a movement here that is gaining a lot of traction and a lot of support, despite the fact that many, many people say this is just ridiculous. Uh, So we're going to have a great conversation with them tomorrow night on the program. Both of them will be here. They have been on the show before. Unfortunately, Jason and I uh, were not uh, uh, doing the show that night, and we had uh, the shark, Bruce Marcus, and our fill-in host doing the show, and he did a great job. But uh, Jason and I both want to have the conversation with them. And that was prior to this documentary hitting as well. Thursday night's program, Sherilyn Darcy, who is a botanical explorer, a natural history author, and an artist, will be with us to talk about the study of floral ethnobotany, which is the connection between flowers and humans. These connections can be cultural, they can be metaphysical, they can be spiritual, medicinal, practical, and uh, so on. There's a lot of different ways that these things can affect us. Uh, She does also study all plants, and we'll talk about how they affect us as well. That's uh, Thursday night's program. Then Friday, of course, we do have a uh, best of program, as we do every Friday. And uh, then it's the weekend, so we'll look forward to that. So again, tonight we're talking with Isaac Arthur, and we will be taking your phone calls at 844-687-7669. Isaac uh, is a science communicator. Isaac, did you ever expect that your YouTube channel and these ideas that you enjoy talking about would get so much support? You have a lot of subscribers. Oh, no, I never saw it coming, to be honest. I put the first video out to uh, mess around with trying to experiment with a new way of using PowerPoint, and uh, I was amazed when I got like 100 views on it, and I got this <laughs> message from YouTube that I had a subscriber, and I was like, what's a subscriber? <laughs> now we're up to about 350,000, so... 
sometimes you aim for these things, and sometimes they just kind of wander across your path. I love doing it, but I never never intended for it to uh, turn to what it is nowadays. When did you start the channel? Um, I... 2014 was our first episode, what I usually call a pilot, uh, but I'd say 2016 when it's when it really turned into a channel. Wow. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's, that's, you've come a long way in, in three years. That's impressive. Um, we, uh, we've been talking about life on other planets. We've been talking about the ability to locate that life. Have we ever considered whether that life comes to us or we go to it? What happens if that life is microbial and is in the form of some type of invasive species and uh, in the, you know what we might consider to be a disease? Well, that's actually a, a possibility for how life might have gotten started on Earth, too. Um, we have three models right now that are probably the strongest ones for how life originated on Earth. Uh, of course, we got the thermal vents and the tidal pools, but the distant third, though still a serious theory, is panspermia, the notion that might have come down on a comet or from another solar system even. And uh, that's actually a decent possibility, though. The others do look like they've got stronger cases for them. And, of course, that's the assumption that just evolved there. There's always the possibility that's how other species colonize. They send out uh, microbes to start it up again, or probably more likely something that we usually call Grey Goo or uh, von Neumann probes, which is little machines that show up and basically build everything for them. And that's often considered one of the better ways to colonize a galaxy, but... It's not really all that strongly favored over other methods, just because there's not too much more of an advantage of doing it in terms of time. So if I understand correctly, um, you said that one of the theories is that an advanced civilization will send out some type of uh, um, vessel that would carry some type of microbial life and have that uh, you know, um, reach a planet and spread from there. Mm-hmm. Quite possibly. I mean, that the option again is usually that we probably be more mechanical nanotech type things, but the line between microbes and nanotech start getting very blurry at higher technological levels anyway. And that's sometimes called directed panspermia, which is where you're doing intentionally and probably have something built in that makes life evolve or grow up much faster so you're not taking four billion years to get uh, get results. Other than an apocalyptic scenario here on Earth, what would be the reasons to colonize or explore beyond our solar system or even beyond the orbit of our planet? Well, I think uh, one of the things we have to say about civilizations like that is if you do it because you can, you know, what's the reason to, uh, to travel anywhere? Why do we go to the North Pole? Why do we go to the moon? And that's Ideally, you'd want more reasons than that, and there are some available, but I think that by itself is reason enough. We've got one solar system that are always going to live for so long, and we've got an entire universe out there, and it's just hard to imagine we could just not want to try it at some point. Um, but at the same time, we do have motivations. Uh, any civilization is going to want to grow with time. That's kind of an evolutionary push, that you want to get out there and uh, expand your territory, if nothing else. And... Uh, uh, you know, that's there's so much resources out there to grow with that are not being used, just in our own solar system alone, let alone the galaxy. And once we have the ability to do that, assuming we get that ability, um, it'd be hard for me to imagine it taking us much longer before some people want to try it out. You uh, mentioned curiosity as being one of the major motivating factors. Um, are there geo- geopolitical implications here? And I'm not even sure if that's something that you consider or, or talk about or give any thought to. Um, but, you know, we do have uh, various factions vying for uh, 
moon landing. You've got the Chinese recently putting a probe on the moon. Um, you've got other nations now talking about making an effort to get to the moon. Uh, and that's just, you know, the, the, the sc- scratching the surface of, of what we're talking about here. But are there geopolitical implications that may end up uh, either derailing any effort or making it a contentious and actually a, a military-induced effort? Oh, sure. There's quite a few things that could cause that. And we have to talk about what could kickstart space exploration or space expansion. And some of them could be things like, uh, you know, this is a better way of generating power. So we, we go up to space to build power satellites, or we need to establish control up there to make sure we're safe and be attacked by ICBMs or things like that. But, I mean, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing in just a few more months here, and uh, not that much uh, shorter since the last time we were there at all. And so you can certainly have things that can slow down such trips. What got us to the moon in the first place? The space race. I like to think we'd have gone there by now regardless, but you do need an emphasis to kind of push you out there. And I tend to think that we'll, we'll have to wait to see what those will be, but uh, they'll probably be what we call black swan, something that is really obvious in hindsight, but you don't really see it coming. And it could be something as simple as we get a signal from a, um, a distant planet. We don't know what it is, and we got to rush up to space to put a giant telescope to look at it better. Or it could be somebody finds an asteroid with a you know a megaton of gold inside it, and everyone's rushing to uh, do 1949, sorry, 1849 all over again and bring <laughs> back that gold. Um, we we had a guest on the program very recently that talked about uh, the moon landings and uh, how they in his estimation were a hoax. Um, you know, we don't, there aren't, that's not a, that's not a generally accepted theory, obviously. Um, however, um, you know, we do, one of the things that's always bothered me is that we haven't been back and it has to be easier at this point, given our advances in technology to get back there. I'm not saying it's an easy process, but it's easier than it was in, in the late sixties. Is that not true? Oh, absolutely. We could do it better and cheaper. Well, I'll say better. I would never say cheaper about any project, <laughs> but right. we could do it better than we did back in 1969. And uh, it, we could send a lot more people. But the biggest problem we have there is there's not a lot of reason to go back until you're ready to establish a permanent base there. And there are certainly a lot of scientific process we could do there, but a lot of those we can also do just in the space station. And the space station is very quick to get back to us, whereas on the moon, it takes a couple of days to get home from there if something goes wrong. And so we, we have to step out kind of cautiously, but I do like to remind people that between when we did the South Pole, the first people to reach there, and built our first permanent base there was also about 50 years. So it takes time. You know, you think about 1492 for Columbus going to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Caribbean, and how it was until things like Jamestown, that was almost a century and a half. So it does take time sometimes. Great point. We're well, yes, ta- we could do it better now. Yeah, better, and I would think that, um, and then you said cheaper, and, and, and it actually brings up another point. I was going to hold it for the next segment, but we may as well ask it now. Um, obviously, uh, we've seen the, um, not necessarily control, but certainly the motivation from uh, of, of space exploration and travel move from a government model, which would be NASA, to private sector companies, as in SpaceX. Um, is that helping or hindering our efforts? Oh, I think it's definitely helping. I would say, uh, I'm always hesitant to say cheaper again, just because from experience, we tend not to end up doing things cheaper. But uh, companies, of course, have to you know make a bottom line. 
So they would be interested in doing it cheaper, too. And, of course, safer because they got to worry about public relations. Um, so seeing more of these companies getting involved in, on the private side of the space industry is definitely, to me, the, the pathway forward if it can be made to work. Obviously, there's a lot of projects that are too big for any company to want to take on and, of course, uh, take too long to get returns. But seeing them in there, groups like SpaceX, Blue Origins, it's a very positive sign. We're talking with Isaac Arthur. Again, he is a science communicator. His website is IsaacArthur.net. Um, Isaac, this is a short segment, um, but I want to revisit this idea of uh, private companies being the um, forefront, uh, being on the forefront of our space efforts, whether it's going to the moon, Mars, or just putting satellites into space at this point. Um, SpaceX has already had a lot of successes, and I think, uh, you you know, you cautiously mentioned the word cheaper. Um, but if I remember correctly, I think some of their latest efforts have been uh, achieved at like one-tenth of the cost of what it would would have or used to cost NASA to do some of the same things. So those numbers sound right to you? Oh, yes. SpaceX has done a great job making it cheaper. And uh, that was something I, I was very skeptical about when they first started getting going about a decade back. I had my doubts that they'd succeed, and I certainly did not think they'd be able to get uh, what they've got going now. But it's a great, um, great tribute to innovation. They have done such an amazing job with that. So, yeah, and they also uh, were able to um, have uh, safely land the boosters. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can. From... I never get tired of watching those clips over and over yeah, again, landing I mean, them on the ground again, or landing them on platforms, and that is such an accomplishment. Yeah, many said it, it just wasn't possible, and they were able to do it. It's pretty amazing what's happening, and it certainly helps our efforts. Uh, uh, as we look at this, and we start to ponder the idea of sending uh, humans to Mars, um, do you? Are we looking at the same type of timetable as our moon? Uh, landings and then subsequent uh, 50-year gap between the initial contact and revisiting for a a, a greater purpose. Do you think the same thing will happen when we get to Mars? Oh, I hope not, but it's so hard to tell in advance. I mean, to really do a long-term project there, and it's such a long voyage there and back, uh, you almost have to have a good, solid reason to be setting up shop there. As they say, we want to do more than just collect rocks. We learn a lot from those rocks. But uh, to set up a base on Mars, just with all the problems entailed with light lag and travel times, you're going to need to have a good reason to be going there first. And uh, we might visit there for the prestige of having done it. But to set up a base there, you know, we need a little bit more of a motivation than we have right now, or it needs to be a good deal cheaper and safer to do. And uh, hopefully we'll get a nice little price point there of uh, increased cheapness and uh, increased safety and motivation that will just mesh somewhere and hopefully get us there in, in our lifetimes. But it's so hard to tell. Do we have the capabilities to terraform a planet like Mars to make it an Earth-like planet? We do. Uh, in terms of the technology, we do have that technology. It's the... Uh, one of those examples where it's not that high-tech, although more technology always helps, it's that you can do a brute-force approach on things like this. It's just, we'd be talking about, it's the difference between building the Great Wall of China and building a fence around your house. It's not that advanced technologically speaking, but there's a lot of effort, and uh, many of us would tend to feel that you'd be better off building orbital habitats for Earth first. Again, we're talking with Isaac Arthur. Website is IsaacArthur.net. YouTube channel is also Isaac Arthur. We've 
encourage you to visit both. We're going to take another break here, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Again, your phone call is welcome at 844-687-7669. Don't forget, tomorrow night, Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent with us to talk about the documentary Behind the Curve, which focuses on the two of them and their uh, building of a community that um, is uh, proponents of Flat Earth Theory. So it's going to be an interesting conversation tomorrow night with the two of them. And then Thursday, Sherilyn Darcy, who is a botanical explorer, a natural historian, author, and an artist, will be with us to talk about floroethnobotany. Also, we have to uh, mention his website again and his YouTube channel. A lot of really great stuff there. It's both under his name, IsaacArthur.net or IsaacArthur on YouTube. If you search it, you will find it. Um, I want to change the the subject just a little bit here. This is our last segment together tonight, Isaac. Let's talk about artificial, artificial intelligence. You brought it up, and it's actually one of the things that um, is often discussed when space exploration, when deep space exploration is brought up. But there's a real fear here on Earth uh, that artificial intelligence is basically going to put us all out of work. What do you see the future of, first of all, humanity and artificial intelligence uh, specifically uh, in the next 50 years or so? Well, I tend to be on the techno-optimistic side, and I think it's going to mostly benefit us. But at the same time, it is probably the biggest potential threat to us uh, at the moment. And again, it could bring us a lot of really good things, or it could be the end of civilization. Although one thing we do always like to stress is that uh, when we talk about artificial intelligence, the tone gets to be so hazy. And uh, in many ways, the most artificial thing on this planet is already the human being itself. Regardless of our origins and nature, we are very artificial. We are the most artificial thing there is. And you could easily end up having a lot of things where it's not just we're making machine intelligences, but we're kind of augmenting our own minds as we go, too. And so you might have, say, a century from now, um, you know, a computer intelligence that we made that regarded itself as human, and humans who were so augmented they don't like to think of themselves as humans anymore. And there's just this spectrum of options. So it's not just AI or human, but probably an awful lot of points in between or things that we just haven't even guessed at yet. And that could be amazing for us. It could be whole new worlds and options and, and prosperity. Or it could be the end of us. And it's just so hard to say right now. We should tread cautiously, but uh, you know, we're not one to back away from a challenge either. There is a, a an original Star Trek series episode where um, the Enterprise visits a planet and the uh, nations on the planet are at war. But the war is complete, completely virtual. It's all fought by computers and casualties uh, are actually realized. But the computer tells uh, you know one side or the other how many casualties they are. And in this particular episode, they, those casualties have to be uh, effectuated and, and people actually report to a place where they are killed uh, in response to the numbers that come from the computer. Long way of going around here to say artificial intelligence and drones and un- unmanned military vehicles are becoming very, very common, and we're seeing them used every day. Does this, and I'm going to ask you to put your speculation cap on a little bit, but does this make war become too easy? One of the problems with warfare as we've gotten into the modern era is that our weapons are so much more powerful than our ability to uh, to absorb them. And to some degree, that has a limiting effect on warfare because people are very hesitant to pull the trigger, not, you know, go all the way in. Uh, at the same time, though, it's so much easier to do so much more damage. 
And there's always that worry that if you're using uh, machines on your side to do the fighting, you're not really getting that human uh, casualty figure on your side. It could make you get pretty ruthless with your enemies just because you're not counting casualties anymore and you don't really consider or care about theirs. And, you know, that is one of those things where I always say we don't know what the future is going to be like, but we do know ourselves. And uh, we tend to embrace challenge. And hopefully we won't end up dying from it, but I don't really see us having much of a choice. We're just, we're going to give it a try. Uh, hopefully it works out well, and if we're cautious, then uh, it probably will. But uh, you know, one of the ways we avoid these problems is exactly through things like science fiction or the speculation we do on it. We try to identify them early on and think our ways through so that we're not blundering into the unknown without some forethought and foresight on the matter. You're a fan of science fiction. Um, what kind of guidance does science fiction give us uh, as we look to the future? Uh, both very good and very bad guidance. I say I love Star Trek, but of course it's got many things about the future that are probably not going to be uh, be very accurate. Um, we said there's a bit of a connection between science, science fiction, uh, both the writing and the art aspects of it, and and the public. Science fiction helps to inspire the new generation of scientists. It helps keep the public interested in it. And it does sometimes give us new ideas. And then, of course, science comes out with new ideas, and someone writes up a new one. So there's a really good simpatico between those. And it's, it's just kind of part of the creative process. In the old days, science and art were kind of a unified field, and we've gotten a little bit away from that, and not always for the better. There's, you know, there's the whole spectrum of knowledge and uh, creativity, and you don't want to over-specialize. You're not ants. You should be a generalist in all things and just have a specialty that you're also good at. Again, trying to fit another topic in here, um, you know, many of us have seen the film The Matrix, and there are more and more scientists coming forward saying that it's possible that we might live in a Matrix-type uh, simulation of some kind. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, there's a specific version that usually gets brought up for this. is called an ancestral simulation. It's a concept that Nick Bostrom had come up with. And it kind of works on there are three possibilities for the future. One, we can't simulate people at all. Either we die off, we have the ability, or we just can't do it. Two, that we, do, we can do it, but we almost never do do it. And three, that we can do it, and we do it all the time. And we don't know which of those is most likely, so we have to say by what we call the principle of indifference that they're all equally likely. So there's a one in three chance it's that option where we can simulate and we do it all the time. And if that's the case, that would mean we have a one in three chance that we would be one of those simulations just because there'd be so many more simulations than realities at war. And so that's kind of where that concept that we might be in one is, a one in three chance, but... Truth be told, it's probably more like one in two, because we can almost certainly do it in the future. There's probably going to be the ability to emulate a mind, and uh, that's where we get the kind of the notion that you might live inside a simulated reality. We discuss this topic a lot on the channel, but one of the points we always bring up isn't whether or not we are. That's kind of the wrong question. And don't ask, are we in a simulation, but does it actually matter if we are? The idea that we have a higher plane of reality above us is not a new concept for humanity. It was more supernatural in the past, but it's a very common feature of many beliefs and traditions. So this is just a new version of that concept. Uh, you brought up something as well. Uh, you know, there's been discussion about immortality um, that's based on technology. In other words, uh, we upload our 
personalities, our memories, our being, our existence into a computer, and it, it carries us on forever. Um, is that kind of what you're talking about with this Matrix idea, or um, is it something else? Is that something different? Well, that's that's one option. The ancestor simulation idea, though, usually comes around a motivation. Why are you simulating your own past or something like it? And you say, well, what would be the motivation for doing that? Because it's much harder to simulate a real person or come close to emulating them than just something that mostly gets the job done for interaction with it. And say, well, if you live in one of those futures where everything is so prosperous, there's always the worry that people might turn really lazy. So you say one motivation for that might be you'd raise your kids in, in a simulation of modern times. One where life is still fairly hard, but you kind of have a basis for the technology you're getting integrated into. And so you graduate from the matrix, as it were, into the real reality once you've built up a good ethics and, and built good knowledge base so that you are not going to turn into a lazy slug in a world where machines do all the work for you. So that's one of the reasons why you might do an ancestor simulation. Have you explored or discussed uh, time travel in any of your work? We have from time to time, and it is one of those ones where it raises a lot of paradox issues. Um, and uh, we, you know, we can't rule it out, of course, but it's kind of the same approach we take for fast and light travel. And in, from a physics perspective, those two are very linked together because any fast and light system usually implies time travel. And say the issue you have there is why aren't people coming and visiting you from the future? Why wouldn't a civilization at the very end of time, when resources are almost exhausted, not travel back to the beginning of the universe or soon thereafter to recolonize the place? And uh, that's always the problem with time travel. You can never rule it out, but it gets to be so hard to explain why you're not seeing visitors all the time. We, uh, we don't have a lot of time left with you, and this has been uh, fascinating. Um, I want to return to the conversation about colonization of space because, um, you know, we've talked about it. We've talked about the concept, the ideas, what it would take. Um, what dangers are involved? We haven't talked about the dangers other than the dangers of the travel itself. But, uh, you know, there's, got, there's, there's obviously a lot of unknown out there, uh, so it might even be hard to answer this question. But what kind of dangers do you see? Well, there's all sorts of natural dangers to space travel. You've got the gravity issues, the whole problem of keeping yourself alive. And, you know, we say space is really empty, but it's not. It's just the problem is everything that space is full of is incredibly lethal to humans. It's full of radiation and, and micro-nukes from anything you collide with. But then you've got the artificial angle. Let's say that the idea that there are a lot of civilizations and they tend to die off before they get to space you know, they might have left some disaster scenario in wake, so you go land on some planet that you think is inhabited, and whatever killed them off is still active. They are waiting to get you. So there was definitely a, a lot of room to be very cautious about space travel uh, from both natural and possible artificial concerns. Will we encounter um, intelligent life or at least see evidence of that intelligent life in our lifetimes? Well, that's a hard question to ask because we don't know how long we're going to live. Um, the rate of technological progress on things like life extension don't really rule out that we might still be around ourselves, you and me, in a few centuries. Um, but I would tend to bet, you know, communication with aliens that we initiate, that's kind of outside of our hands for the next century or two at least. But they could contact us if they exist anytime they want to. And uh, that could be tomorrow. That could have been, you know, a century from now or could have been 60 years ago. Does that scare you, or does that excite you? Both. Both. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the cool thing about that sort of thing, is there is a bit of a danger risk to it. 
I tend to feel we're probably the only intelligent life currently in our galaxy, but I hope I'm not right because it would just be such a more interesting place if it was tr- you know if there were a lot of civilizations out there to talk about. But the implications of why they are silent, if if they do exist, can be a little bit scary too. You know why aren't they talking? And uh, there is not just a concern that they might feel there's a threat on, but that there might be something that makes civilizations kind of give up or get bored or not be curious. It's so hard to imagine a civilization getting technology that's not curious, but if there's something that that takes that away from you, you discover everything, or you just don't care anymore, in many ways, that's kind of like almost as bad as being wiped out. At least if you're wiped out, you go out with a bang, as opposed to you just lose interest in life, which is such a worse fate in many ways, you know? You obviously have a lot of projects in process if you if you publish a video once a week um you're thinking ahead what are the topics and some of the projects you're working on now uh well the one we just uh got going for this week that comes out on thursday is on what we call clock tech which is uh, a quote from arthur c clock about how any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and usually on the channel we try to limit ourselves only to technologies that are on the horizon or inside mainstream science as is but this week we're going to let our hair down a little bit and kind of explore some of the wilder technologies we see in sci-fi. And, uh, of course, last week our episode was Hitchhiking the Galaxy, which was kind of just looking at how a person would get around the galaxy if it was colonized and, you know, they weren't on a mission to go colonize planets themselves. They just wanted to kind of lope around the galaxy. How realistic would that be? Obviously we don't have... Um any real space exploration beyond uh, you know what we have to the moon or what we have from uh, robotic uh, spacecraft sending back to us but there's a lot of science fiction there's a lot of movies uh, there's a lot of books that uh, discuss the sub- subject in a fictional but also educated sense any of those particularly movies that you recommend people to see if they have a real interest in this Oh, uh, Morrow's by Andy Weir certainly would be a very good one. Um, and uh, his new book, Artemis, was quite good. Alastair Reynolds' Revelation Space Series is definitely on the top, if you like the hard science approach on these things. And there's a lot of really good science fiction out there. We were just mentioning Arthur C. Clarke a moment ago, of course, from 2001, The Space Odyssey. And those are great places to start if you want the kind of hard science look at them. But there's a lot of other good science fiction that plays more with concepts than science. And you know, those aren't always the hardest on science, but they often look at a concept in a lot more detail and, and can be just as relevant to the future as the ones that are science-focused. So someone listening tonight goes to your YouTube page. Uh, again, it's uh, your name, Isaac Arthur. They can find it. Um, you've got a lot of videos there. Where do you recommend they start? With whichever one interests them the most. Uh, we often have playlists of associated videos, and uh, they, you know, they all intertwine with each other to some degree or another, so there really is no good starting point. I often suggest starting with the newer ones because the production's a bit better and my speech impediment's not as bad, but scan through the video titles, look at the you know, thumbnails. The titles always say what the episode's about, and uh, find one that interests you and start there or click on playlists and watch one of those. Isaac, it's been a fascinating night, a lot of great discussion. Uh, You uh, know your stuff inside and out, clearly, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Once again, uh, I know you have a Facebook group as well, but give give the addresses of places that you'd like people to go to find out more about your work. Well, if you go to YouTube, that's where most of the videos are at, and IsaacArthur.net, and of course on Facebook, we're Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. Same for uh, on SoundCloud, if you like to listen to episodes to watch them, or on Reddit or Twitter. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. Again, thank you for being here. 
Isaac Arthur is our guest tonight. Uh, fascinating discussion. IsaacArthur.net is the website. Check that out. Going to take a break right now. Come back and wrap things up in just a few minutes. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Ever wish your wishes could come true? Well, now they can with the Wish It HD. Grabco's Wish It HD. I was in the ER and had my eye on this hot nurse in scrubs. Glad I had my Wish It HD along for the ride. Hey there, big boy. Time for a sponge bath. Now I'm getting scrubbed. Thank you, Wish It HD. Grabco's Wish It HD. The Wish It HD uses the latest in new technology to harness the power of the ethereal planes and grant your wish, not just in normal D, but in the latest high-quality HD. I needed money and fast, so I just used my Wish It HD. Here's your 337 and change. Thanks for reading the burger down. Thank you, Wish It HD. Grabco's Wish It HD. The Crapco Wish It HD, guaranteed to grant your wish in stunning HD. Another amazing product by Crapco. The Crapco Wish It HD is not guaranteed to grant any wish. Why sound like this? Hey, good looking. When you can sound like this. Hey, good looking. Crapco presents. It's the Crapco Cardboard Tube. It makes any voice sound like a professional voice. Kids, it's time to come in for dinner. The Crapco Cardboard Tube. The Crapco Cardboard Tube uses the latest in cardboard technology combined with science. Science to change any normal speaking voice into one that commands attention. It's great for corporate board meetings. And our sales have been up for the whole last quarter. As a pet calling device. Here, Muffy Muffy. Difficult breakups. I've tried for months. I've cried for months. I just can't any longer. For that important political stump speech. I never had sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, or any woman. While handling kiln-fired ceramics. Kiln-fired ceramics. And don't forget those intimate moments. Hey, baby, what do you think of my cardboard tube? <laughs> the Crapco Cardboard Tube. As an optional add-on, order the hands-free neck mounting device for that extra convenience. The Crapco Cardboard Tube. The Crapco Cardboard Tube is made of premium quality recycled-used cardboard and has been rigorously tested in the lavatory. I mean laboratory. And this can all be yours at one low price of $29.99 or $49.99 with mounting device. The Crapco Cardboard Tube does not require batteries and may or may not have been recycled after being used to hold bathroom tissue. All right, that's going to do it for tonight. Thank you, to everybody, for being here. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Tomorrow night, we're talking about Flat Earth with Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent right here on this channel. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.